89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Raina Cohen. Welcome to this edition of Cover to Cover, Open Book, or as I like to say, Frame to Frame. For the next half hour, we're going to be talking about film. My name is Raina Cowan, and today we're going to highlight uh, Frame Line 40, the San Francisco Lesbian, Gay, Trans, Queer Film Festival. And we're going to be talking about two things. We're going to talk about the centerpiece film, uh, the U.S. feature called AWOL, directed by Deb Cheval, who is here in studio. And before that, we're going to talk to uh, former Bay Area filmmaker David Weissman. Uh, he lived in the Bay Area for a long time, and he, along with Bill Weber, directed the film The Coquettes. And then uh, he did We Were Here, which looked for the... It was the first film that really looked at the... Th- thing of AIDS and what happened to the gay community when it hit back then. That came out in 2011. Uh, Besides being a filmmaker, he founded the Portland Queer Documentary Film Festival, and he has attended all of Frameline, so all 40 years. So, David, welcome to KPFA. Hi, Rena. Hi. So I wanted you to talk about this new project that you're working on. Uh, You know, I have loved your films and not only do you make films but you make the best trailers both for the um for frameline <laughs> and for the jewish film festival so there's a way that your creative spirit is always really alive and well in what you're doing and oh, thank you yes i really appreciate your work so you're doing a new film called conversations with gay elders and uh, what was really stunning to me is that you're working on this project, you've already started it, and Frameline believed in you so much that you actually had like kind of a pre-screening before you were even finished, both to get, uh, I guess, other people as potential people to be interviewed, but also to get funding for it. And uh, people who were there were incredibly moved. So what was it about thinking about conversations with gay elders that you think now is the time to make a film like that. Well, it's not actually a film that I'm making in the conventional sense. Essentially what I'm doing is individual character studies of gay men of the pre-Stonewall generation. So each of these pieces are going to be freestanding single-character films that may range from anywhere from 15 to 60 minutes long each. So there, it, it's not... Um, it's it's hopefully going to be an ongoing project where I do many of these over the years. I've done I've shot five interviews so far. Four of them are currently in post production, and I hope to shoot ten, fifteen more over the next two years with a variety of different men with different kinds of stories. And the reasoning behind this is that after I made my film, we were here, which was very much uh, uh, a kind of a look back at the uh, the arrival of AIDS in San Francisco and how it impacted our community. It became more and more clear to me how little communication happens between different generations of gay men, particular considering that there was such a huge loss of a particular few generations during the period of the AIDS epidemic. And unlike most minorities, uh, queer people can't really learn about our history and our culture from our mostly straight parents. So if there isn't conversation between generations, a lot of that history and culture... um, is at risk of being lost. So 
So the generation of men who were dealing with their sexuality before gay liberation is not going to be around forever. And then everyone else's lives, those of us who came out after Stonewall, all of our stories are different because we came out into a context in which there was already some degree of political affirmation of who we were. So I want to capture as many varieties of these stories of how men navigated the realization that they were gay when it was completely stigmatized, when it was completely invisible, when there was no name for it. Uh, so that's really what the project is. The thing that I think was really unique in terms of what you're doing is that you're having young editors be the one who are who's taking the raw material and turning it into something. Uh, that was yeah. such a great idea. Yeah, you know, this wasn't part of my initial concept. It, it came to me very, very quickly, uh, I think right Probably as I was shooting the first interview, I realized that it could be such value added to make the actual production of these things into an inter intergenerational conversation. So essentially, I'm conducting all of the interviews myself, um, and then I'm working with a different editor on each elder. So I'm I'm essentially pairing an elder and an editor, and I'm you know I'm working as a director with the editor, so they don't have complete carte blanche to to edit it as they see fit, but I get the, the great benefit of the perspective of someone young, um, and they're getting the benefit of working, you know, with a, you know, a well-established and well-known director uh, to edit these things, and it's been a very, very rich experience thus far. Well, it also seems like that there's different ideas that might be important to somebody who's young rather than someone like you who came out uh, not that long, perhaps, after Stonewall. Yeah, I mean, it's a great combination because I certainly can come up with questions and have conversations with the elders that a younger person would think of, certainly because they don't have the the life experience and historical knowledge that I have uh, as a 61-year-old man. But I get the benefit of hearing from them. Like, for instance, I will sometimes think, oh, we can take this line out. It's not that important. And then the younger editor will sometimes say, oh, no, no, that was actually really interesting to me. So the whole process of this is its own ongoing conversation between generations. The editors that I'm working with, I have two 25-year-old editors and two who are in their 30s, and the elders who I've interviewed, the youngest is 72, and the oldest is now 88. Wonderful. So if people want more information, uh, is there a website? Well, I'm just going to be starting to update this because the project has been sort of below the radar until I started having uh, the two public screenings that I've had recently, one in Oregon and one here at Frameline. So I'm probably going to start bringing the project more into the public eye. So if people are interested, they can go to my website, um, which is davidweissmanfilms.com, and then uh, they can click on the link that says new, uh, new project. And there's a background essay there, and I'll be starting to update as, uh, as I start changing the way I'm dealing with the public presence of the project. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. David sure. Weissman, Conversations with Gay Elders. Thank you so much, Raina. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now I want to talk about uh, the centerpiece film at this year's Frameline Film Festival. It's a film entitled AWOL, directed by Deb Cheval, and it takes place in working-class Pennsylvania. It's the story of a young woman, Joey, who's in search of direction in her small town, and she winds up getting pulled into the army and then winds up falling in love with, I've never said this before on the radio, somebody named Raina. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, 
So uh, with me to talk about the film and to go into it in more detail is the director, Deb Cheval. Uh, her film was first a short that showed at Sundance, and then this film, I think, started at Tribeca, or at least that's when I first heard about it. So... Uh, Welcome to KPFA. Thank you so much, Raina. So you grew up in this area, this working class area in um, Pennsylvania. But what sort of inspired you to make a film about these two women characters, um, Joey played by Lola, Lola Kirk and Raina played by Brita Wool, and this kind of relationship that develops between them? Well, I was very much interested, first of all, in shooting in that area near where I grew up. Um, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania is the closest city. It's an old coal town. We haven't really had coal in almost two generations. And so it's very interesting to me sort of what life is like in a post-industrial area, which I think a lot of other people in other parts of the country aren't really aware of. Um, so the landscape... Um, and the sense of place was very important to me. Um, and then the story developed, as you said, fr first from the short film, um, which is kind of just a condensed version that's ultimately the feature. Um, I was very interested in in lesbians in the military and who is joining and why and who is joining and then deciding to leave and why um, and so I conducted some interviews and ultimately this is just one fictional story but I was very much informed by uh, some of the people I spoke with so the, we don't see a lot of films that are about sort of working-class lesbians in terms of uh, or maybe they all sort of focus when they are there kind of on the bar or in prisons, for example, in some kind of caricatured way. So I imagine that you wanted to try to capture them as real people. So how did you work on that in terms of your your screenwriting and developing of this idea? I mean, I'm definitely a big workshopper. At every phase, I'm always applying for grants, and at every phase, I'm always having people read and give me feedback, you know, um, so I think both of those things really help. You know, you're not just home alone until the last day and then being like, I hope this works, you know, but all along really trying to get feedback. And that feedback was very varied. You know, I would send it to someone who's a recruiter in the army and say, hey, does this scene ring true of what it's like when someone comes into the army recruiting center? Or, hey, you know, you're from a Catholic working class family. Does this feel like something the mom would really say, you know, just to try and really get authentic characters, because if the script is working, the the film probably will. And if it's not, the film probably won't. The person who plays Joey, uh, Lola Kirk, is amazing in this role. I mean, like she it, like she lights up the screen. She's believable as uh, someone who is who both knows how to flirt, but is also completely lost inside uh, she really captures that really well. How did you find her? Thank you. Yeah, Lola's a gem. Um, we really lucked out in that Lola actually auditioned for the film in probably what was the three days of her life she was auditioning for things. Um, she had just gotten out of college. She went to Bard. Uh, she already had representation, so she came in through our casting director. I was very specific and very picky about what I was looking for. And beyond what I felt like I needed her to look like and feel like, I also needed her to be an excellent musician. Uh, we actually were on our third day of, of auditions, and we were really 
thinking about sort of pausing and heading to LA for casting. We were based in New York casting because it's a hard thing to find someone who looks sort of that young and innocent, but they have to be over 18 to do the nudity, you know, so it's a very sort of tough thing to find. Um, and the third day, the casting director, Adrian Stern, said, you know, just check out this woman who's going to come in this morning. I think you're going to really be excited about her. And she she was right. I mean, Lola blew me away. Her singing just was so moving, first of all. Um, you know, and Lola's, she's an excellent actress. And of course, then while we were shooting the first part, we shot the movie in different parts. But while we were shooting the first part, she got a call back from Noah Baumbach. And so she went and did Mistress America and then went on from there to do... Um, David Fincher's Gone Girl and now is in Mozart in the Jungle. So she's having, you know, quite the career and we were really touched and grateful that she stuck with this film and came back to finish it. And so you shot this film in the the area of this, you know, western coal mining western Pennsylvania coal mining town. Maybe it's not western. Northeastern. Northeastern, mm-hmm. okay. Uh so Shooting a film that has a lesbian theme, like what was it like shooting in that particular area? Because it seems like that there's mixed responses to queerness in the community, in the film. What about for you and your crew and shooting and convincing people why their set should be in part of the film? Mm -hmm. In general, I think when you get outside the city, it's really nice because people are very excited. Not everyone, but most people are very excited to have a movie shot in their ice cream parlor or country fair or, you know, so we got a lot of excited yeses. To be honest, we were pretty vague. You know, we talked about it as a coming of age story, which it is. We talked about it about, you know, a woman's, a young woman's journey to, um, join the military, which it is, but we didn't explicitly say, you know, we're shooting this gay lesbian love story and there's lots of nudity in it. You know, it was never like that. So. And what do you think would have happened if you had? Um, first of all, I think, you know, well, I, I mean, some people certainly would have said no, absolutely, to the locations. And some people, I think, just might have been too curious. And you're trying to protect the actors at all times and make sure the set is a comfortable and safe space for them. So as much as we could not have curious people who just wanted to see what was happening around, you know, the better. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about the character, Raina, um, who, you know, is a very difficult person in a number of ways uh first off uh it's she's somebody who has a reputation as willing to sort of sleep with anybody there's a a kind of ruthless destructive quality about her um she is married and has a couple of kids it's unclear what motivates her internally and uh and for whatever reason, Lola falls in love with her. So it means that we as the audience also have to figure out how to fall in love with her enough that we want to watch her. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there is a sense that there is something really destructive about anybody being in a relationship with Raina. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> but this character. So uh, I'm I'm wondering about how you thought about it. Because it's... it it. It's precarious. You know, it's often we have characters that we don't really like, but when it's a love story, we really need uh, to create something that feels viable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Brita Wool, who plays Raina, I think is a fantastic actress. And we talked a lot about her character and really sort of developed her together. I mean, I think deep down, Raina is someone who's very motivated by fear um, and 
she's always been sort of the prettiest girl in town and used her sexuality to get what she needs. Um, and, and growing up in the sort of rural Appalachian poverty that we see her living in, she clearly needs a lot of support and help from other people. Um, so I think she's very good at getting what she wants and she's really fun to be around. She has this joie de vivre and she clearly has all these friends who like her and, you know, people, it's not surprising. I think that Joey falls in love with her, but, um, but like you say, you know, we see how dangerous it is for Joey and how, and how destructive because, um, as Raina very frankly says at the beginning of the film, you know, she's not leaving this town with Joey this relationship's not really going to happen. You know, she's actually very honest the whole way through, and Joey just sort of doesn't want to hear it. Um, but I think, you know, what's compelling to me about her is is how fragile she is. You know, underneath, I think, that joie de vivre is really someone who's petrified to leave her little 900-person town, much less the state of Pennsylvania, you know. And so... She's constantly dreaming of this freedom that Joey, I think, very much as a younger person and a person who's not married and doesn't have kids, really symbolizes for her. It's it's interesting because in some ways the the danger that Raina represents is also similar to the danger that the military represents, the mm-hmm. army. And that's another thing that Joey doesn't realize. You know, she thinks that both of these options are a way out, a way to something better. So, but at the same time... Uh, you know, we as the audience are saying, go to college or yeah. <laughs> or whatever it may be, you know, like do something that is uh, taking your talents, even becoming a whatever, you know, that there's something that's there in terms of the intensity of what's happening. Yeah, I think that um, this movie is very much about class and the opportunities that young people in this country have and, and don't have. Um, and I, I think we've been really lucky in that our audiences so far have really picked up on that and that's very much been what the conversation is about um so i think for joey in a way the army it feels much more realistic and attainable than college which just feels not really possible to her um and i think deep down joey very much knows that she's someone who has a bigger life ahead of her and she's sort of willing to try whatever will allow her to like get out of the fate that's clearly been written for her that's you know what she's already seeing her sister for example play out right so we're talking with deb cheval her film awol is playing at Frameline. there's two screenings one this evening and one on saturday which we'll go into in a little bit so there's a lot of different elements in this film um there's the way that lola is somebody who can sing her passion which is you know incredibly beautiful she's um she thinks she's really drawn to religious music Mm -hmm. in a way uh but that there is a way where she is uh that there's there's some part of her that's always alive that is always engaged in something which is really interesting and then there's another way where at one moment there's a scene which i think is quite hysterical where she winds up connecting with these um college women who are sort of like uh, use deconstructionist language and understand 
I guess, class on a theoretical level rather than on the same kind of level. And you realize, oh, wait, these people are actually living so close to each other and yet are in such different worlds. Is that what it was like for you growing up? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's interesting about these small post-industrial areas is um, the disparity of, of class is phenomenal. I mean, where we see Raina living, you know, which is not really that far out of town, there's often no running water, no hot water, um, giardiasis in the water if there's water. I mean, just all kinds of very serious health and safety issues that we sort of tend to associate with like the third world, quote unquote, but but actually exist very much in this country. And so Joey, growing up in a more working class family in town world, feels very much not a part of that and has been told and taught that she's, you know, above that. Um, and yet then there's this whole other small but significant world of kids whose parents are doctors or, or lawyers or, you know, a sort of owning class of people who, you know, shop in the same mall and, you know, go to the same ice cream store, but really are having an entirely different perception of what opportunities they have, what career paths are open to them, um, how they're allowed to express their sexuality, too. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that is something that is really unique about the queer community, is that people wind up interacting with people of different social and economic classes in a way because of sexuality that's really different than how some some segments of the population are really stratified. I agree. Yeah. So uh, so it was interesting cuz I don't think I've seen that so much in a in a film before. Well, we we really fought for that scene. A lot of people um the Japanese restaurant scene we call it, um a lot of people were critical of it, you know, and it did get whittled down and it did get um, voiceovered and, you know, some things to make it work better for sure. But I think also there are people who see it who just didn't want to feel um, self-criticized. You know, they want to gaze at other people, but not necessarily see something that might be poking fun a little of about their own subculture. So, it was, you know, always a debate, like, keep it in, take it out, keep it in, take it out. And I feel really great that we've we've kept it in and people have responded really well to it. Yeah, it seems like an entryway into something, I think. So this film I know has showed at Tribeca and other film festivals. Has it showed at all in more working class or rural communities? Well, we just premiered at Tribeca. So this is our third festival now. We did Provincetown. Now we're here and we'll do Outfast. So it will have, you know, a big, long life, but this is just the very, very beginning. Oh, I see. So, mm-hmm. so, so far it's just been in the kind of the festival circuit. So nobody in the community has seen it yet. Not really. No. I mean, sure. A lot of people from Pennsylvania worked on the film. So everyone who worked on the film was invited to our screenings at Tribeca. Um, so definitely some awesome characters came, some parents of the kids and some, um, you know, guys who play cards in the, you know, scene where Joey comes to Roy's trailer. So there's definitely been people who maybe the film is about, you know, that are that have seen it. But on a large scale, no, it hasn't played in rural America. It's not available yet on the Internet or in Redbox or anything like that. But mm-hmm. hopefully. So what do you think the biggest challenges were for you directing this film? This is your first feature length film. So mm-hmm. 
What did you come up against? Um, well, first of all, we had to really persevere because we started shooting in 2012 and finished in 2015. So you have to just keep believing we're going to finish this movie. We're going to have the money, the actors in the right season, and they're all going to happen at the same time because oftentimes we would have two of the three. And um, so it was it was quite a task to coordinate getting it all back up and running. Um and, you know, in a practical sense, we were shooting, you know, the, the last two thirds of the movie take place in freezing cold winter. And I think, you know, for me and for the director of photography, you're so, you know, the adrenaline rush is so great that you can handle these crazy cold temperatures. But it's a lot to be asking of crew when you're paying them so little to then be like, OK, I'm sorry, you can't feel your hands and feet. And, you know, so some of the challenges were just very very practical, you know, how much are you going to allow people to kind of be in these really crappy conditions in order to make your artistic, you know, project happen. But we had we had great crew all the way through. The film is entitled AWOL by Deb Cheval, and the title, I guess, speaks on many different levels about like people who are missing in action. Mm -hmm. And then also about this idea of once uh, Joey joins the military what happens can what will she choose to stay in the military or not stay in the military and uh and so i it seems like that there's a lot of um different pulls in this film in terms of what you're trying to communicate one i mean i think that there's the i guess the subtext has to do with the impact of the military and the impact of the military of why somebody would choose that as an option um and then not knowing what was going to happen to her when she is in the military, how how does she find herself? Like, is it a road to something or a road away from something, mm -hmm. I guess, in some kind of way? And you said that you did some interviews in advance with people who had been in the military. Uh, so did, was that some something that you wanted to address in a subtle way in the film? Well, in general... Um like I said, I was curious about sort of who's joining, you know, in this post 9-11 world where you know that serving in the military might actually be quite a dangerous thing to do. Right. Um, who's joining and why? Um, and, you know, one of the people who was most interested, interesting to me, her name is Skylar James, and she had um, joined the military really on a whim, like the way she told the story was she was in an argument with her mother and she went with a friend of hers to get ice cream. And in the same strip mall where they got ice cream was the army recruiting center. And she just walked in and it sort of, you know, oh, this will really piss off my mom. And here was, this, you know, incredibly, you know, life altering decision that that got that got made on a trip for some ice cream. And then while she was in um AIT, which is sort of the next thing after basic training, she was getting sort of, you know, uh, harassed for being gay. Some people saw her in the mall on a day off holding hands with a girl she was dating. And um, she started to get really afraid about being deployed overseas and the kind of um, treatment she might get in a situation that was a lot less monitored, perhaps. And so she tried to get to see an army psychologist and talk about it. And they said, you know, you're being deployed very soon. When you get back, we'll deal with it. And she was so scared that she hopped in her friend's truck and left the base and drove to Canada and sweet-talked their way through the border without ID and 
and then has been there for years now, living in Canada, unable to return to the United States. And what was so compelling to me about that was that I think I looked at a story like that, wanting it to be about militarism and some, you know, awakening about the realities of U.S. militarism, but it it was so much more sort of young and innocent and impulsive, you know, that she's making these decisions much more from this very personal place. And so that that really informed um, the writing of Joey, just remembering what does it feel like to be 18 and to feel so trapped and told by other people what you can and can't do um and what does it feel like to you know believe that you deserve better and more well we're speaking with deb cheval her film awol shows this evening 6 30 p.m at the castro theater in san francisco and then this saturday june 25th at 7 30 at the piedmont theater in oakland if you want more information about frameline and the film festival which runs through sunday you can Go to frameline.org, Frameline 40, uh, the San Francisco International LGBTQ Film Festival. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Raina. This is Raina Cowan. This has been Cover to Cover, Open Book, Frame to Frame, and I will be back next month talking more about film. Thank you so much for joining us. Is making a difference important to you? Is charitable giving one of your core values? Like many people, you'd like to know that the causes and organizations you care about today will continue to thrive in the future. In addition to supporting the work of KPFA through cash donations, consider making a planned gift. It's easy and provides tax benefits as well. Simply put, planned giving is the transfer of assets to a designated nonprofit organization during your lifetime or as part of an estate plan. You can gift KPFA in your will or trust with stocks, real estate, or any amount of money. In return, you'll receive a generous tax benefit. For more information on planned giving, consult your financial or estate planner and our website at kpfa.